Hey there, friends. Jay Revel here. Welcome to my new show. It's called Mid-Am Crisis. You might be wondering what that's referring to. And in short, it's a reflection of where I am uh, in my life and career right now. Uh, a little while ago, I made what I call a COVID-induced career change. And now I'm going out on my own full-time with my business, Revel Media. Uh, more on that as we go. But most importantly, I'm going to be producing a range of things, including this show, where I will dive into conversations with uh, some of my friends and acquaintances from in and around the golf world, where we talk about all things golf, life, and everything in between. I hope you enjoy this first episode. It's with my good friend, Sean Martin. He's the senior editor at PGATour.com and a frequent visitor uh, to my hometown, Tallahassee, Florida. We talk about all that and more. Uh, in a wide-ranging conversation. So without further ado, here is episode one of Mid-Am Crisis. I hope you enjoy the chat that I had with my good friend, Sean. It's Martin. Yo. How are you doing, pal? Uh, good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. What you up to these days? Just uh, work, you know, working, making sure pjtour.com has great content. A-plus content. Uh, you've got a busy year ahead of you, my man. Y'all, uh, that new schedule y'all just released is uh, aggressive, you might say. Well, you know, we got to get back on, kind of back on track, if you will. I guess this season was shortened because uh, of COVID, obviously. So this one's going to be a little bit longer. And, you know, by the end of the 2020 season, hopefully at least the golf world in a sense will be back to normal you'll have guys graduating off the corn ferry tour other guys losing their cards and um so yeah i think you know we had a, a strange year it was a i mean from a golf standpoint i thought it was a great year but we'll kind of be back on schedule now and then this season we got i mean we got six majors i know it's you know i was tweeting about this the other day you know you, you look at the some of the data from the national golf foundation they're talking about you know record sales months for golf equipment both in june july and in august and then you're seeing these um you know up in the 20 to 30 percent growth in rounds played and everything i'm like man you couldn't get a better scenario than to have that happening and then work back-to-back masters uh followed in by you know a 50-week pga tour schedule it's like you know maybe we'll you know, beat that trend down to death, but uh, we also might get people hooked for life, which is what I'm rooting for. Yeah, I mean, it's been very, I mean, nobody benefits from a situation like this, uh, but if someone did from a sports standpoint, I mean, golf definitely did. I think, I mean, it's a great way to, for, you know, a lot of people are lacking recreation. A lot of, you know, gyms are closed and stuff like that, depending where you live. uh, People are craving you know, camaraderie, socialization, um, you know, restaurants and bars are closed depending on where you live. So if you're looking to get some exercise, get some recreation and get some socialization, I mean, golf's it. So it's perfect for that. So in that sense, I think golf has really kind of filled a need for people. No, there's no doubt. I mean, we, we've seen it, you know, here with my guys and you know, at the local club. I mean, it, it, it probably saved our country club. I mean, just, you know, being blunt. I mean, it, it, you know, we've done okay. Uh, They survived, you know, the 
uh, hell of having, having me be the been to your club. <laughs> I mean, having been to your club, I think your people would gather no matter what was going on outside of a lightning storm. Um, I don't think you need anything to encourage the Saturday regulars of Capital City Country Club to. to yeah, gather. they didn't need they didn't need any gas on their fire or passion for golf. But the good news is, is the group the group's growing. <laughs> we got a lot of other people who are who are coming out and you know testing the limits of their. Uh, careers and marriages and such by uh, uh, hanging out at the golf club till all sorts of hours of the evening. But um, yeah, it's, it's wild, man. I mean, I was out there today and what, you know, it's, this is a Wednesday, you know, I was out there briefly earlier and, you know, I see these young guys out there ordering beers from the window and turning around going back out. And I'm like, I guess that's part of the work from home crew out here you know, on their lunch break. Yeah. Throw up a uh, out of office reply and you know put a fake meeting on the calendar and um, go play some golf. I think uh, they're not the only people to do that. I was in a meeting and uh, someone's camera accidentally turned on in the middle of the meeting and they were in the the locker room of uh, a golf course. Uh, oh, that's outstanding. Busted a little bit. So I think I think a lot of people have done that. I mean, that's the kind of the beauty of work from home. You kind of get in your own flow. Some people, you know, especially if you have kids work early mornings, work late nights, and then in the middle of the day, take advantage of that and uh, play some golf. I went out um, Tuesday morning. Beautiful day. It's like literally like the first little touch of that crispy fall air coming in. And I went out and said, oh, you know, I'm just going to go out there and putt for a little bit, and I'll come back and try to start doing some work at the house. And guy ended up staying out there for like three and a half hours just hitting balls and goofing around, played three or four holes. And I mean, it was just absolutely glorious. And I was like, oh, you know, I could get used to this, not having to uh, report to an office anytime uh, or on someone else's calendar for a while. You know, fun employment, I guess, is what we're calling it right now. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's great. The setup you've got at Capital City is great. Uh, I think I, I have not taken much advantage of it. Uh, I still have a job. Fortunately, I still have two kids. Fortunately, uh, and so those still take up a lot of my time. And um, I, in one sense, the nice thing is, frankly, I mean, I have a three-year-old who is a golf addict, so we get out at least once a week and hit some balls and chip and putt. But as far as playing, uh, it's been it's been a while. Where are y'all going when you go out uh, with the kiddos? The very popular, uh, very well-known Jacksonville Beach Golf Club, which to oh, their perfect. to their credit. Uh, it's a great place for families. Um, you know, they'll sometimes, they have the window like you were talking about and they'll sometimes, you know, my little guy will ask for a large bucket of balls and they'll just give him balls uh, and not obviously not charge him. He doesn't have any income. Um, but, you know, let us just have some balls and kind of encourage, you know, help us out. You know, they see us there every week and um, encourage, you know, the next generation to play and got a great, huge chipping green. I mean, you, can, you know, depending on how many people are there, there's a big bunker. You can go back, you know, 50 yards, uh, if it's clear, they've got this huge open short grass area between the chipping and putting where, you know, he can hit full shots because it's only 50 yards or so that they go. And then a really big putting green where people, so you have people just hanging out there and they make it, I mean, it's kind of like where I grew up. I grew up at the also famous Westlake golf course where now, you know, George Gankis has kind of put it on the map and Matthew Wolf. And, you know, that was my upbringing in golf was you could wear t-shirts and shorts, you know, t-shirts and basketball shorts, sneakers, 
uh, and you could hang out all day, even if you weren't spending any money, they weren't, you know, shooing you off. You could hit putts across the putting green. You could hit 50 yard chips, even if you occasionally hosel rocketed one uh, onto the putting green that endangered some people. And they just kind of let you have the run of the place. You know, they'd let you kind of know if maybe you'd gone too far, but you know, that I think making it really easy for people to hang out, really comfortable for people to hang out. Um, it's just huge. Cause then kids get used to just sitting at the golf course all day. No, it's the, it's literally the best thing in the world. I mean, I, I think back to, you know, the little nine hole I grew up on and I mean, my parents used to say, I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, they, they always comment back to me now and say it was the, the golf course is the best babysitter they could have ever hoped for. And it, and it kind of feels like, you know, I, I'm getting you think about that environment out there or just the environment of the country in general. Like there aren't many places. I think you feel like as a parent, you can just go and just kind of drop your kids off and come back, you know, yeah. four or five hours later. And the golf course is like the last place you can really do that. I feel like, I don't think you're dropping your three-year-old off yet, but he's he's on his way. Not quite there, but yeah, I mean, you know, I was probably, I didn't start till I was like 11 or 12, but you know, as a, as a parent, you don't want to be a helicopter parent, but you don't want to, you know, put your kids in danger either. And we've, you know, I've kind of debated internally, what's the age where you can just leave at the golf course. Obviously three is not it yet, but, um, for the most part, yeah. I mean, my parents did when I was 11, 12, definitely, uh, leave us there for hours. Uh, we used to, they used to have a bank of pay phones on the wall of the pro shop. We'd call on the pay phone. Um, <laughs> you'd have to like borrow quarters if you didn't have them. And so those pay phones are now gone. Uh, sadly sign of the times, you know, cause every six year old has a cell phone. Um, but yeah, I mean, we would hang out there for hours. Yeah, it's and that's a solid environment out there too at Jack's Beach. I know you're, you know, you're exclusive to only the most elite municipal facilities in the country. Um, but uh, can your can your kiddo hit the boat yet, or the surfboard? Are those in range the, on the drive? The, the boats, the boats like two hundred yards out. The lifeguard stand is like one seventy five. Uh, the trying to think what else the surf i don't know where the surfboard is but yeah there's definitely there's a boat on the driving range uh and there is a lifeguard stand which i think is great you know unique targets give him something to hit he loves he does he loves the uh ball picker upper as everyone does oh yeah he hasn't, he hasn't hit it yet but he definitely i think he's got his eye on it well it you know there really is a genius to what they did out there i mean a literal boat big boat sitting out in the middle of the driving range you get to doink them off of that all day uh, you got all these fun little things out there. I don't think everywhere could pull that off. You know, you're not going to see that out at Wingfoot. Um, but it really plays well. The, uh, the, there's a nice whimsical uh, sort of feeling to it out there at Jack's Beach. I, I dig it. Maybe it's the beach scene. Maybe that's what it allows the uh, more casual atmosphere. But it's solid. It's great for the kids. Yeah. And I think, you know, Atlantic Beach Country Club is kind of like that as well around here. Similar vibe, private course. Um, very laid back and i think i mean obviously it fits with the you know jack's beach ethos i guess i don't know if you could do it everywhere but i think it'd be great for more places to do it even if you don't need a boat you just gotta i think again you gotta make people feel comfortable out there and not feel like they're you know especially if it's 100 degrees out making you know t-shirt and shorts okay making you know making them just feel comfortable my um talking about kids my daughter Last night, I was heading to 
the golf course for our Tuesday night league where all your favorite degenerates that you see when you come over here uh, hang out. And, you know, so I leave, I don't know, probably 5.15, get a 5.30 tea time. And my wife went to pick my daughter up from school. And um, when she got home, she was looking for me, wanted to know where I was, insisted on calling me, and um, picks up the phone. You know, when I answer, she goes, she goes, Daddy, are you, are you playing putt-putt again? And I said, yeah, yeah, I am, uh, Winnie. And she turns to my wife and says, Daddy plays putt-putt a lot. <laughs> she, she's very perceptive. She's getting it, man. And I was like, oh, man, this, this could be a problem. Although, I will say, she loves it. Like, you know, when I get into, you know, if Sarah's got something going on, needs a, a break, needs a few hours, she goes, she's got a little group she's been playing some tennis with or you know just wants to you know check out and get away or do work whatever um i take her up there i mean, I, I take winnie up to the golf course all the time she loves it give her the putter pink golf ball and she's really getting into it i mean you know she 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 likes you know she'll get about eight inches away from the cup and just make make those things like over and over and over again and just could not be more excited it's the coolest thing to see um but it's fantastic man and yeah you know, I was, um, we were up there and I was up there putting and the guys in the 1030 Saturday group were getting ready to get off and she just starts running around the green, right? Just kind of like, you know, going nuts and I see her stop over in the corner and I'm like, uh, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm pooping, I'm pooping. I was like, oh God. Wow, we're touch we're touching all the bases. Uh, oh yeah, we're hitting all of it. So yeah, yeah, we're going deep. So, you know. I run over there and I was like, are you okay? Are you okay? You know, and she's like, yeah, yeah. You know, she's over there doing her thing. And I proceed, you know, just being the you know dumb dad, I guess. I proceed to just change her like out on the front porch, the veranda, you know, of the country club. And you know, <laughs> my wife comes walking up from uh, the tennis lesson she's doing. It just is like, what are you doing? Why would you, think that it's okay to do this out here and i'm like i don't really know why i thought this was okay but um you know it's kind of one of the advantages i guess of you know being a member of a struggling country club you know the rules kind of go out the window you feel inclined to change your kid on the veranda while everybody's warming up for the 10 30 group or you know let your dog wander around with you whatever you know whatever floats your boat it's like they need the dues too bad you know to really for anyone to accost me for these things yeah, I we unfortunately haven't had a uh, bathroom incident at the country club, but I'm glad that uh, I'm definitely glad that your place is accommodating to diaper changes. I mean, that's the ultimate level of you know comfort, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Ultimate super gay. Yeah, hey, when you gotta you know gotta take care of business. Yeah, it's you know when nature calls, you gotta do your thing. Um, so uh, when will we be able to see your smiling face walking around uh, the grounds of Capital City again? Uh, you know, holiday time. We we may get back. My in-laws live in Tallahassee, which of course is the genesis of this relationship. Besides Twitter, um, so we go back. You know, once every two months or so. So maybe holidays, I would say. I was trying to recall the other day how we got hooked up initially. I guess it was on Twitter just or something. Maybe you were coming woke, to town or something. Woke, woke golf Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, just flexing some wokeism. Um. But, I mean, I, I do remember, I mean, I knew, you know, said so you were in Tallahassee, obviously. My, yeah, my in-laws live there, and Tallahassee is only so big, so. 
Well, yeah, and you kept and, you yeah. kept uh, harping on the you know AW Tillinghast roots of this course. You <laughs> hey, if anyone wants to come play this AW Tillinghast design, did I mention that it's designed by AW Tillinghast? Uh, I had to, you know, once once you had the Tillinghast angle, I, and I had to, you know, hit you up for a round. Yeah, well, you know, everybody needs a hook. I, I have evidence. He he spent at a minimal one day here, and you know. That's more probably, than you can say for, you know, some Stark attacks. I've probably been four or five times now. Does it does it live up to the uh, glory you imagine when I first described it? I'll tell you what, for living in Jacksonville, which is flat as a pancake, where you can literally, if you get on top of one of our bridges over the intercoastal, you can see for miles. Um, I do enjoy the topography of, of Capital City. I think, you know, like a lot of places, if, I mean, if we could raise some, you know, capital, I think if you could put a good couple mil into that course and really, you know, maybe freshen it back up, maybe, you know, get a little movement back in the greens, you know, a la Wingfoot. I mean, I think you could really, really have something there. It's a, it's a fun place to play. Um, it's enjoyable, but I think that, yeah, there's some, it has very, it still has some good, you know, skin as well, but has very good bones. Um, where if you could really freshen it up, get some good bunkering in there, um, get some green movement. I mean, it could be because the, the topography is there and that's, you know, that's one of the biggest hurdles is, is you don't always have sites like that with, with so much elevation and, and hills. Well, you know, I'm doing my part uh, ever since, um, you know, my former employer decided to downsize uh, a few weeks back. I got a call from one of our lovely retired uh, gentlemen who, serves on the board. His name is Sheldon Gusky. He is a character straight out of like, I don't know if, if you've ever seen, uh, what's that show? It's on, uh, was it Amazon? Is it Red Oaks? Is that the country club show they had going on there for a while? You're talking to the wrong guy about anything streaming. Oh, have you not seen that? Oh, I mean, man. I've it's read hard. a lot of books. Uh, well, you know, but... yeah. Some of us decide to educate ourselves and dive deep into the history of the game. Others stream Tiki Tack shows on Amazon and Netflix. Um, so Sheldon, let me, let me, so Sheldon's a treasure of our board of directors, right? And he is just, he's just this character and he's retired. He's got a lot of time on his hands and he spends that time uh, tinkering, as I would call it, tinkering out at the country club. And again, this is one of those, again, advantages of, you know, having a place that's sort of on the, on the, on the decline or on the, maybe we're on the rebound now. I don't know what you call it, but, a lot of rules go out the door. So Sheldon gets out there every more every Monday morning at seven thirty, and he goes and gets one of the maintenance buggies and gets you know his shovel and his clippers and gloves and chainsaw, whatever he can get his hands on, and he just kind of moonlights as the Monday morning maintenance crew, uh, trimming shrubs and cutting back all kinds of stuff. And so he calls me goes he's like uh, I hear you. Uh, I hear you're looking for some work to be done. Uh, I hear your schedule's lighting up quite a bit. I was like, yeah, well, it has. And he goes, well, why don't you uh, uh, come out here and join me and let's do a little work? And I said, oh, well, you know, I've got nothing better to do. I don't really have an excuse. So why not? So I've been moonlighting with him on the maintenance crew every Monday morning the last few weeks. And it's like the most wonderful thing. I, knowing I, I knowing have, you and your, you know, spiritual connection to the game that I have admittedly <laughs> don't necessarily have. Uh, I could see you just loving the early mornings, the, you know, you get on the mower 
the fresh cut grass, the sun is rising, the birds are chirping. Um, you know, I could definitely see that really, uh, really feeding that kind of, that connection to the game, to the course. You almost, I'm surprised I haven't seen anything written about the, you know, the, the ghost oh. of A.W. Tillinghast as you're, you know. Don't worry. The, the essays are forthcoming. You know, Mondays with Sheldon uh, has a nice ring to it. Unfortunately um, for Sheldon, and I don't watch a lot of TV, but unfortunately for Sheldon, all I think about when I hear his name is um, Big Bang Theory. And I'm sure that's not, oh, yeah. I'm sure yeah. not something he wants to be associated with. <laughs> no, no. he uh, He's got a lot of theories and uh, very happy to share them. So hey, we're, I think we're like the two guys that you know, no one or people kind of pretend to listen to out of the club. You know, oh, here comes Rebel. He's got another story. Here comes Sheldon. What, what's he talking about now? And so it's so perfect because the two of us just sit out there and then, you know, one of us will rattle off for 30 straight minutes and uh, ignore the other one. And then we just go back and forth, you know, ignoring each other's, um, you know, drawn out stories. It works. It works wonderful, wonderfully well. Now that uh, I could see that. I think I think you carry more, you know, more weight, more gravitas at the, at the club than you think. I think uh, every club needs its you know, resident storyteller, it's historian. Um, you know, I think, you know, this past week, uh, Neil Regan at Wingfoot, the club historian, yeah. you know, I saw him on a video talking about the Gil Hance, uh, renovation of the greens. Uh, he was on the fried egg discussing the history of the club. And, and so I feel like you serve that role. And, um, you know, actually, I mean, frankly, we should get a, a Gil Hance Reno of this Tillinghast design. I think you expand, oh, expand the greens, bring out some new hole locations, uh, go back to, you know, Tilly's original design. And, that, and that's, yeah, I think that you're all over that. So I think, I think, uh, I mean, store, golf, you know, to, to channel my inner Jay Revel here, golf is a game about stories. There's that old, uh, I want to say it was Edwin Pope quote about the smaller the ball, the better the writing. Um mm-hmm. And I think that definitely uh, applies to golf. I mean, it's a, it's literally man versus nature. You know, you don't, the only thing you're battling is yourself. Uh, you know, you're, you know, when you can blame is yourself as well. And so that's, it is the ultimate, uh, you know, kind of combination of, of physical and mental uh, as far as the game, because you're fully exposed out there, you know, whether you're coming down, you know, the back nine trying to win a tournament or break 80 or, you know, win a match in your club championship. I mean, it's, uh, and I, you know, we've seen it. What are the, what's the old quote too as well? You know, you, I think it's from Bobby Jones. You never learn more about someone than if you play 18 holes with them. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's very true. Uh, you know, which that's why I keep wondering why I keep playing with the same people I play with all the time. Cause I, I know all I need to know about them and, and it ain't good. <laughs> I mean, I've played with them the four but... or five times and I think I know all I need to know about them. <laughs> Yeah, they're. Uh, that being said, I've enjoyed all of my trips to Capital City Country Club, and I do, I do uh, definitely recommend people play. Uh, it is a, a passionate group. Well, you're you're kind of our Jacksonville, you know, Greater uh, Jacksonville area ambassador. Uh, we need to make that official and get you a little pin made or something. You can uh, sport that with pride. It's tough because you know it's a two and a half hour drive. There's really not much golf wise in between. And frankly, you know, Tallahassee for, you know, being Tallahassee is, I remember the first time I went there, it's definitely much smaller than I thought because you think FSU, you know, you're thinking Deion Sanders and Charlie Ward and, um, you know, Heisman trophies and national championships and, uh, you know, this huge football program and university. And it's a pretty small town. And really, I mean, 
capital city is, you know, your best golf option there. I think, um, you know, they've got the renovated Seminole legacy club. I don't know, you know, what they're, uh, what they're charging these days, but, um, I think if I lived there, capital city is a place to play and there's not, especially public wise, there's not really a lot of options out there. There's a couple of little, little munis. Um, but you know, as far as like making, crafting a golf trip around Tallahassee, it's, it's hard to do. Well, yeah, it's funny you say that. I've been talking to our friends at, uh, visit Tallahassee a little bit. And, and I think we've got some, you know, we've, we've got more potential there than, um, than people probably think, you know, again, we've got a couple of places like Southwood and Killarne that have, you know, started off as, you know, private country clubs and now, you know, much like us are open to the public. So, you know, there, there's, there's a little bit more there than there used to be. I did not realize that they were, they'd open their gates. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Cause you do have some, uh, you know, you have some um, history there with the, the Tallahassee Open, um, mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. a tour event, and then also a you know satellite event in the early days of the the predecessor to the Corn Ferry Tour. So, um, I think yeah, those are definitely kind of open the options. I guess I didn't realize those were those were available to you know non-members like I myself. You, I tell you a crazy story about that tournament. So, back when Gary, did Gary Player win it, or he was runner-up? Yeah, I think he was runner up. Tom Watson won it. Uh, Chi Chi won it. So the Chi Chi, uh, Sluman won it once. So Chi Chi, listen to this. This is pretty wild. So back in its heyday, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, they, you know, know, very different tour, obviously. You know, they're playing for pennies compared to what the guys are after now. So, you know, there was just this just totally different air about it. You know, the guys were. I don't know. It was kind of this, you know, movable feast of, you know, hustlers. And every year the tournament would come to town when a lot of the guys would finish playing their round at Killarne, they would shuffle over to Capital City and there'd be these sort of almost like after party atmospheres going on with some different games and just people having a good time. And I mean, this is back in, I mean, that place was really, you know, blowing up too. And, so one one year, Chi Chi comes out. Uh, I guess maybe even maybe it's earlier in the week, and he's rummaging around in the bag room, and he sees this set of clubs. I think they were like brand new, maybe Spalding is what the story was told to me. And he picks one up, and he's kind of waggling with it, and likes the feel of it, and looks over to the pro, and he says, "Hey, whose clubs are these?" And he says, "Oh, those are you know Mr. Jenkins's clubs," and. He actually just got those in. They're brand new. He's only played with them once. And Chi-Chi walks down the driving range, hits a shot with one of these irons, and comes back up and says, I'm going to take these. I really like the way these look. And literally takes the clubs out of the bag room and goes out and wins the golf tournament with them. And the guy uh, you know, shows back up. The member shows back up a few days after the tournament and comes to play, and the pro says, yeah, we've got a bit of a problem. Chi Chi took your clubs uh, and went and won the tournament and just left town with them. And I think Chi Chi actually ended up mailing the guy a check uh, to cover the clubs. But, you know, don't see that much out on the tour these days. Can I name off? I, I went to Wikipedia, uh, found the oh, Tallahassee beautiful. Open. Let me name off some of the history here of the Tallahassee Open. Uh, started in 1969. Uh, Chuck Courtney was your winner. Don't know much about him. Uh, but two years later, Lee Trevino. 
wins the Tallahassee Open Invitational, which, by the way, I think Open Invitational is an oxymoron. <laughs> um, that sounds exactly like it was cooked up at uh, the Chamber of Commerce. You know? In 1972, it started its run as the Tallahassee Open. Uh, Bob Shaw, winner over Leonard Thompson. Next year, Hubert Green, uh, winning one for the oh. home crowd, former FSU great. Yeah. Uh, one stroke over Jim Simons, the man known as, I believe, shot a first-round 65 at Marion when he was an amateur, and I believe held the 54-hole lead um, only to struggle. Yeah. Uh, next year, Alan Miller won. Uh, don't know much about him, um, but one of the runners-up was Eddie Pierce, uh, P-E-A-R-C-E, which I do recommend if anyone has some time to kind of Google and look around. He was one of those guys, this, you know, all-everything phenom who just burned out, um, I think ran into various troubles off the course as well, and just, you know, one of these, you know, what-could-have-been stories. Um Next year, Rick Massengale by two strokes over your boy, Burt Yancey, the man who once uh, mm-hmm. – well, you take it from here about his preparations for Augusta National. That's your story. Oh, he built, he built the clay, the hand clay models. He, so, Burt was a uh, manic depressant. He was a brilliant, brilliant golfer. He grew up in Capital City. His father was actually the city manager here in Tallahassee. And he built these – he was obsessed with the Masters, just absolutely obsessed with it. He wanted to win the Masters when he the world. He came very close. I mean, like – four top five finishes in about a seven-year span in the uh, 60s, just right there in it. And um, he built these hand clay models uh, to scale of every green. He would sit there and spend time, like, running his hands over the slopes so he could study the greens. And, I mean, you know, damn near worked. I mean, it was pretty wild. And he had a, I mean, kind of a rough, rough go. He was on on the golf team at West Point. And he had his first like manic depressant fit. He basically got kicked out of the academy, and went into a um, mental health facility for some time. Comes out, gets himself together, goes out on tour. He won. He won. Let's see. I don't know how many times he ended up winning. Quite a few times. Uh, won at Pebble Beach uh, once. I seem to remember. And um, you know, came very close to the Masters and a few other majors, but had a brilliant career. And it got cut short because he, he was on a flight out to, uh, I think he was going to Japan after playing in Hawaii. He has another manic fit, and he actually ends up getting in a fight with the Temptations, the damn, you know, doo group, at a hotel lobby in Tokyo. And they arrest him, and Dean Beeman literally uh, flies out there uh, to get him out of the, out of jail, and they put him on some meds, and the meds gave his gave him like a tremor in his hand, and he he never was the same again. It's crazy. You don't get those stories anymore. No, no, you don't. That's uh, where where can the fine people find that story if they're I, so inspired? I wrote I wrote a piece about it called uh, Bert Yancey's Green Jacket Dreams. So yeah. Put that in the Google machine; it'll come up. I think it was on I was on my Medium page a couple of years ago. All right, so I won the uh, I won the Burt Yancey Junior Invitational at Kalarn. <laughs> that's right. I knew there was a I knew there was a <laughs> That's the hook. <laughs> uh, all right, real quick, I'm gonna go through this winners list real quick. Uh, Gary Koch in 1976, underrated Ooh. career for Gary Koch, six time tour winner. Um, I, I think yeah. everyone knows him for his TV work, but also a good player in his own right, as they say. Not, not um, bad for a Gator. 1979, Chi-Chi wins by three strokes. May have st- won with stolen clubs. Yeah. Uh, 
Let's see what else we got. 1981, Dave Eichelberger, playoff, playoff over Bob Murphy, who is just – his swing is just burned into my uh, my memories uh, because when I first got into golf, the what was then the senior tour was on ESPN, and hmm. I was all into golf. You know, you're home during the summer, Champions Tour, Senior Tour is on all hours. Bob Murphy was killing it, him and Jim Colbert. Uh, and Bob Murphy had that pa- – I don't know if you remember the pause in his swing. He had like a like a two-second pause at the top of his swing. Um, but anyways, and then a playoff over Marco Mira as well. Uh, you know, then you go into the dark days of Tallahassee. When it, it was just a satellite event, which is basically a cornfield right. event. But uh, Bob Charles, first left-hander to win a major, huh? wins one 20 yeah. years after winning the Open Championship. FSU great Jeff Sluman wins. Uh-huh. Then we have a three-year run where the Tallahassee Open returns to the PGA Tour. Keith Clearwater, who still, you know, people see a lot of uh, because he plays Colonial every year, and sometimes that gets brought up on Twitter, uh, even though he has <laughs> earned the invitation as a past champion. Um, he won it by one stroke over Bill Glasson, Billy Kratzer, who my friend still plays with in Jacksonville here. Uh, he's a member of Marsh Landing. And mm. I think he said Billy is 68 and he shot 65 yesterday. And he said, wow. can't pot, just stripes it. He's like a, like a senior version Hideki. Um, <laughs> but then lucky, luckily the next season, uh, Bill Glasson, the, you know, long flowing locks of Bill Glasson. I don't know if you remember the shoulder length yeah. that he had. He used to rep that, the old top flight irons. He got revenge the next year, won the Tallahassee open after, you know, losing it the year previous. And then finally, 1989, the final installment of the Tallahassee open, Bill Britton rolls to a four stroke victory over Ronnie Black. No idea who either of those two people are. So unfortunately, that may have been a harbinger of you know things to come for the Tallahassee Open. That was Britain's one shining moment, perhaps. Is that his yeah. only tour win? Uh, let's click the link here. Five professional wins, one in the PGA wow. Tour, four and other. He finished seventh in the 1990 Masters and fourth in the 1990 PGA Championship. So two top tens in a major in one year. Uh, so that's also, what got him in the Masters, right? The Tallahassee Open win. How about uh, that? He won the. 1989 Centel Classic, I think, was what got him in. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was the talent. That was talent. Oh yeah, over four, four strokes for Ronnie Black, lone win. Also won, or no, he lost the 1982 Walt Disney World Classic to uh, Hal Sutton. Uh, lost to Sutton's birdie on the fourth extra hole. Sutton won the PGA the next year. Uh, Britain most recently won the 2005 and 2006 New Jersey PGA Championships. Man. Okay. Wide-ranging conversation here. No kidding. Wow. See, this is why I always like talking to you. I feel like it just goes in so many wonderful directions. And you never know what you're going to get, but it's always fantastic. You know, you, you were, we were texting the other day, and you were talking about sort of, you know, you were mentioning earlier me, I'll go out here and that kind of fun over the, you know, mysticism of golf. And you're, you're a little more of the, you know, statistician side. Um you were talking, you kind of making some comparisons between just like baseball and golf. And I feel like your kind of mind gravitates into just that, the, the world of statistics. And you, I, I can just always feel like your wheels get turned in that space. What, what, what do you think that is with you? What's your, what's your kind of, what, what draws you to that? Uh, very black and white. I don't like fluff. So that's why when we get, you know, <laughs> I had more of this like uh, you know deep spiritual connection to golf. It's funny because I like playing, uh, and I, I think now that I don't really practice very much and I don't play very much, so I don't play very much good golf. Uh, I need to you know adjust my thinking. But I used to really like golf because 
you know, I love the way it felt to play well. Uh, and then I hate bad golf. So, uh, but obviously I play a lot of bad golf now cause I don't play very much. Um, and so it's hard for me to love the game when I'm just not, not playing that great. Um, and I do love, I wish I could just go out, you know, some of our friends on our, you know, Palatka five group chat, which I'm sure we can get into that name, uh, here pretty quickly. We'd be remiss not to mention Palatka golf club. Yeah. Um, I think the boys would be disappointed. Uh, I wish I had that ability like some of them do to just kind of, you know, I'm just going to go out and just, you know, I'm going to just play some golf and hit some shots and be out in nature and I'm going to enjoy it. And I just, I, I think I can do that if I'm playing by myself or with one other person on an empty golf course. Cause then you're just kind of, you got a good pace going, good conversation. You're hitting shots, you're in rhythm. Uh, but man, there's, and you know, you remember at a country club, you have to deal with pace of play issues, but there's nothing worse than, <laughs> being on the 12th hole three hours into your round, you know, playing awful. It's hot out. Uh, that's so there's a lot of first world problems. Um, but yeah, I think I'm a very black and white person, which sometimes I can kind of, and probably have seen in our group chats, group texts, uh, I could probably use a little softer side, a little more bedside manner possibly. Uh, cause I, I don't suffer, um, you know, I'm quick to jump in if I think someone's opinion is misguided or their facts are wrong, uh, instead of letting them kind of hold their own opinion or whatnot. Um, so that's, I think that's the drive. I'd rather know the facts of, you know, who won what and how they did it than just kind of guessing. And, you know, I don't like the platitudes of like, well, you know, he's going to have to want it more if he's going to want to win. I, I do not love that or I not like that kind of analysis. Uh, that's so not, just... not, not big on the uh, random Azinger comments. Uh, yeah, I don't want to bring people into it, but you know, I, just, <laughs> yeah, you know, who wants it more or he didn't want it enough or, you know, I, I don't, I'm not in that stuff doesn't, doesn't do it for me. You know, I, I talk about, there's two kinds of writers. There's pontificators, uh, which I think I would put you into that class. You like to pontificate. You know, kinda, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's lean, a fair uh, description. Lean back, stretch the fingers out, you know, get the quill pen going and just, you know, there's those guys. And then there are just, you know, deliverers of facts. And I think that myself, I'm more of, I like to, you know, it's why I like writing about the, the younger guys or the guys that might not be famous yet or the Hideki's or the, you know, I love to tell a story that people haven't heard before. I always make this comparison that when I was at golf week, there was a guy whose job literally every tournament it was to write about tiger. And there's people now whose job that is. And I couldn't do it because you're just, you're having to, you know, put some sort of new bow on it and tell it in some new way. And it's, it's an art. I'm not just saying that, you know, um, I, it, it's tough, but I would not want that job. I know more people would read your stuff if you were just the tiger guy because you're writing tiger stuff. Um, it's, uh, you know, I am more, I'd rather tell you a story that you didn't know. Um, so that's just my take. I'd rather deliver you new facts, you know, deliver you new information that you didn't know before than have to try to, you know, gussy up the same tiger stuff that you probably just watched. What do you think, you know, does, does riding have a future? Does it have a future in golf? What's the, what's the state these days? I mean, it's tough. I mean, you, you know, I mean, does writing have a future? I, I think so, but you know, you think about it as video becomes more and more prevalent, writing becomes less and less necessary. Now that being said, there are, things that writing can do that video can't. I think good writing makes you reconsider, you know, what you just saw. So if someone's writing a story about the PGA championship that you just watched on TV, you need to deliver it 
whether through better better information, you know, better statistics, better historical context, you need to provide them something that they didn't know and then provide it in a way that makes them kind of reconsider what they just saw or think of it in a new light um, or provide them a different context. Because um, if you're just reporting, you know, Colin Morikawa chipped in and then he made eagle on 16 after knocking his tee shot stiff, it's like, yeah, I know that. But like, what does it mean? How should I think about it? How should I feel about it? Um, you need to do that. Um, but, you know, you think about it, you know, back when Obi Keeler was uh, the biographer for Bobby Jones, there was no television. So, you know, literally people, their only experience of Bobby Jones was Obi Keeler's words. So, you know, whatever Obi Keeler wrote about the tempo of Bobby Jones's swing or, you know, his gait with which he walks or, you know, how he carries himself or his emotions, all those things, like, they didn't see any of that. They were 100% completely reliant on OB Keeler's words to deliver that information to them. Or, you know, then you get to Arnie and, you know, you know, TV starts to come into the game, but what you maybe saw Arnie on TV three times a year. So even then the writing is still important because nobody knows how he won the, you know, Azalea Invitational or Canadian Open or um, any of those things. And, and so you still need the writers to paint that picture for you and almost then allow you to kind of imagine what happened. But then, you know, with, you know, for example, Tiger, I mean, every single one of his swings is on video and you've seen it probably live. You've seen the highlights package, you've seen it on social media, like you've seen it 800 times. And so somehow you need to, um, with writing, you, you can't, no one's relying on your writing to tell them what happened. They're relying on your mm-hmm. writing to make them think about it differently. Who do you think does the best job of that in golf these days? Gosh. Um, um, man, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> you know, I think there's different ways to do it. You know, I think I've read some great, I, mean, I think Ryan Lavner, when he goes long on, on stuff is, I mean, it's great stuff. I think, you know, Justin Ray is mostly a Twitter, you know, mostly found on Twitter. But, you know, Justin Ray is a great follow, you know, for giving us different facts that put these things into context. Um, I think, yeah, it's hard. I, You know, and there's so many good unemployed golf writers. You know, I yeah. miss the days of, you know, if you go back and read Rick Riley's old SI golf gamers, I mean, they're mm-hmm. unbelievable. You know, or Jaime Diaz, who doesn't write much anymore, or Jim Moriarty. I mean, Jim Moriarty features were like the, you know, I guess chef's kiss of, uh, you know, golf writing. Um, Moriarty wrote one. <clears throat> I'm a little connected to it, but he wrote a piece once about my uncle that is just one of my favorite pieces. I, it, it was called um, Relentless Ben. Your and uncle's Ben Crenshaw. About, well, yeah, uh, mine, yeah, Ben Bates, a uh, little less heralded, uh, a couple less green uh, sport coats. Um, but you know, Ben, Ben, ha- I don't know if he still has these records or not. But he had at one point, he basically had the two most dubious records you can have in, uh, you, know, you know, the the minor league, so to speak, um, in the the corn fairy tour. He, he, so Ben started was there in Bakersfield, California watching Ben Hogan hit the very first shot when it was Ben Hogan tour. Um, the winner played, of the 1990 Bakersfield open, uh, the first event on the, uh, what is now the corn fairy tour was Mike Springer, by the way. 
No, well, there you see, this is why I like having you around. The um, you had Ben was there from the Hogan days to the Nike days. Uh, he got his card, was on the big tour for you know four years, just long enough not for his pension to vest, and goes back down to what then I guess would have been buy.com. Uh, and then what came after that? Web, I guess. Um, and uh, no, nationwide. Yeah, he was on. It was nationwide. I mean, he did all. He did everyone. He's got you know a, a hat from every corporate sponsor. But um, at one point, he had the most um, starts ever on that tour, and he also had the most cuts made ever on that tour at the same time. And right about the time he set those records, Moriarty did this story on him about you know just never given up and uh it was he, he crushed it it was really good you can it's on it's on the interweb you can you can google it i think if i google ben bates jim moriarty they're probably will be the only thing that comes up yeah that's probably a one out of one but it's a it's an entertaining read for your uh First for your next up. cup of coffee yep there yeah go. It's, a, it's a good read of course, second paragraph, Crash Davis comparison. That's it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember that. It was a big deal over in the uh, uh, town of Havana. That's it. We, every, everyone, everyone talked about it. Did Fidel um, read it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uncle Fidel. Havana, uh, uh, Florida, I think, is the. Well, so you know, we sell merchandise over there that says Florida, not Cuba, on it. They. Uh, <laughs> They're very proud of it. <laughs> Havana, it's Havana, Florida's claim to fame is that it's not Cuba. Yeah, not the one in Cuba. Uh, slightly more freedom. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it is interesting. You go, you talk about all those sort of the great golf writers, and you know, you know, now I mean, you know, we've got some good people who are out there doing some some wonderful work. Um, but it, you know, it all it always feels to me like the shelf life on these things, particularly like. You know, we're all pushing out stuff online. It's just, it's just short. You know, I mean, you you get, I don't know. It doesn't lay around on the table, so to speak. No, um, I mean, a friend of mine did a project for uh, our homepage, and it was basically gone the next day. And he's like, "Well, where is it?" And I said, "Man, that's just <laughs> welcome to my life. It's just yeah, no, you know, you you and I think it's this balance between." you know, kind of trying to pour your heart and soul into a story and also realizing it's shelf life. And so getting it out there quickly. So it's not the last thing published on whatever subject, you know, whatever tournament you're writing on and trying not to be jaded to like, well, this is going to be gone in a day, but also trying not to, you know, labor over every word and then, you know, filing it at one in the morning when everyone else is packed up and, you know, their stories have been on the web for, you know, two hours. And so, it's just, it's such a tough balance because, um, because yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think, you know, you used to get, I mean, you used to get golf week and golf world. Uh, I think golf week. And I say, this is, you know, someone, I worked there for six years. I love that place. Um, but I think they publish nine magazines a, a year. Um, mm-hmm. so it's not exactly a week and then golf world, um, same thing, but you know, you, you get the magazine. So you sit down with it and, um, and it's hard for me. I, you know, I, I tried to subscribe to a bunch of magazines. Magazines don't really fit in with my like kind of media ecology. I read articles online. I, you know, I subscribe to the athletic, I subscribe to the wall street journal for articles. And then I try to read books. And so magazines are like this weird in between. I know you're a big golfer journal guy and I love the people over there. I've just had trouble 
kind of finding a way for golf magazines to fit in. Um, cause if I'm going to sit down and read for a while, I want to try to read a book, um, and get a little deeper, but I know that, I mean, golfers journal has done a great job. I have a collection of them. I keep them all. Uh, they're still sitting there. I have articles that I've been dying to get to and I just haven't, and I need to, you know, maybe my next or first, you know, kind of sit on the beach vacation doing nothing, which it's hard to have those when you got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, but, um, yes, it is. so I'm still the trying to read those, but just haven't quite, uh, quite done it yet. Yeah. Uh, it's tough. I mean, that, I think that's why I like, you know, the journal and McKellar and other things is like, I can sit down and I can read, you know, one story in 15, 20 minutes and I can feel like I got in, I got out, I got my reward and then get back into, you know, parenting or work, or whatever else I got going on. And like the thing with books, like I, I always gravitate to the books that allow me the opportunity to sort of read it in, you know, short spurts. Like I've been reading uh, Sandy Tatum's um, A Love Affair with a Game. Great read. Love I didn't know Sandy Tatum wrote a book. It's good. Yeah. It's, I, Let I've me, been enjoying it. You know, it's, if, if we can go down the Sandy Tatum rabbit hole real quick, talking oh, about you know, people that just kind of yeah. love the game, kind of like we were talking about that I, I wish I had that and you definitely have that. Um, when I was doing research on Harding Park, obviously his name came up a lot since he kind of led that renovation into making Harding Park what it is today. Um, but they were talking about this is a guy lived in San Francisco, big time lawyer, member at Cypress Point, but um, he would play Harding Park and play the San Francisco City Championship in just you know awful conditions. You know it, it was a match play tournament played on the weekend, so they really couldn't you know halt play for weather, and so you'd get standing water and puddles on the greens. Um, because they just had to play through the rain and there was no lightning. So they just kept going and Sandy Tatum be out there just grinding in the rain on these, you know, awful fairways and awful greens when Harding park was in complete disrepair. Um, you're talking about a former NCAA champion doing this and, but he just loved golf so much that he just, he'd play this dumpy public course in a downpour because he just loved it that much, even though he could go play Cyprus. Yeah. No, I mean, he's got some great, like, it's a really interesting read because I mean he it's it's sort of just his reflections. It's a memoir, you know. I mean he 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 bounces around a little bit between different people, different places, thoughts on you know rules. I mean he he's got uh, the the two most interesting pieces. You talk about him winning the NCAA championship, unless someone else has won it since this was published. Him and Tiger are the only two Stanford Cardinal to ever win the NCAA. Uh, you've and had one since, I, but yeah. Have you had one? Okay. Who was the other one? Uh, Cameron Wilson. Unfortunately, career hasn't Cameron quite panned out. 2014. Wow. How about that? Um, yes, it's just fascinating. He wrote Tiger a letter about encouraging him not to turn pro after winning the third straight USM. And it was really fascinating. <laughs> good I mean, good I luck with that. Kind of, yeah. Well, he wrote it and he talks about basically he stuck it in a drawer didn't end up saying it because um, it was just obvious that he was about to do it. And then he ended up writing a revised version of it that I think he published in one of the golf, or he, maybe he was published in the USGA journal. He published in one of the golf. Gosh, magazines. that was another but, magazine I missed. I know. Exactly. Golf journal. Exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, fascinating guy, great writer, a um, lot of opinions. The man, he might actually be the original wokester. Um, he pinned this piece in there 
about his disdain for golf carts that it, he just undresses that idea in the most direct way. I mean, he just torpedoes the whole concept. It's, I hate, it's oh. incredible. I mean, there. I don't. I mean, I guess if you need the extra carrying space for you know your twelve pack, which is not a knock on people who drink while playing golf, to each their own. I have like half a beer and I, like, I can't play. Um, I'm not sure why. It's just I totally. It all goes down. I think I have to think so hard uh, to produce any modicum of a successful golf shot that you know you throw me <laughs> off at all, and I'm just I'm toast. Um, so I don't usually don't drink while playing unless it's a completely absolutely meaningless round. Um, but I just, I've never found any enjoyment in the golf cart. I feel like the conversation is so much better when you're walking. Um, ironically, though, in the golf cart, you know, you're pre COVID, you're jammed in there together. I don't know. There's just, there's just, I've never had, I, I don't want to say I've never had an enjoyable round, uh, on a golf cart, but it, it just, it doesn't, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's just a, it, it, and he talks about that. I mean, it removes you from, so many of the reasons that, at least in my opinion, you should be there. You know, it removes you from nature. It removes you from your friends. It removes you from, you know, fully experiencing the golf course. It removes you from the walk. I mean, you know, it it it, it definitely um, is a problematic way to enjoy a game. Now, that being said, I don't – I've kind of come full circle on it where, like, I'm like, hey, look, if that's your – I'm glad you're playing golf. If that's if that's the way you play, I'm glad you're doing it. I'd rather you be playing golf, you know, in a cart than not playing golf at all. But it it definitely to me is one of those things that once you if you're ever willing to take the step out of the cart and you know get out and and start hoofing it, it I think it just changes your perspective on the game and does so relatively quickly. Completely agree. Hundred percent. And it uh, it gives you a lot of time to uh, what would you say I pontificate on the game you know that's um, that's my scene so it's fun um, speaking of of you know walkers um, and people that we uh, enjoy um, the um, um, Palaka gang our Palaka five group which we mentioned earlier I feel like um, I feel like they deserve you know. Some shout outs. Um, oh, I think let's start. Well, let's start with the golf course itself. Cause sure. This is my, well, yeah. This is my, you know, I feel like every, you know, golf Twitter person has their golf course. You know, like, so No Laying Up has done tons for Jack's speech and yep. done a lot of good for them. Um, so Jack's speech, I don't think, needs my help. They, you know, I mentioned them earlier. They've, I mean, it's a great place to go. I think a lot of people know that from golf Twitter. Um, so Palatka is kind of my pet project of just, trying where i can to help them out because i mean one of the joys of palatka is you can get around there quick without running into other people you know it's that fine balance of like it's great to play fast it's great to play an empty golf course it's great to not have to wait but it's also not good for the golf course um yeah and so that's you know that's i think where palatka is at because it's in it's pretty removed from you know the general flow of things i guess palatka used to be kind of a uh, you know, in the maybe twenties and thirties, a hop in winter town, like a lot of places in Florida, because it was a, a train stop. I mean, the train tracks mm-hmm. literally run along the golf course. It's kind of part of the charm of it is, you know, the train's right there. Um, but you know, most people don't travel by train anymore. And so Palaka now it's off the beaten path, like 30 minutes from I-95. And so 
it's hard to make that trip, but just an, an awesome, I think 5,900 yard layout, um, classic old style Donald Ross. Some would say Donald Ross esque. Um, some would say actual <laughs> Donald Ross design. We'll get into that, but just the, you know, I mean, it's the poor man's Pinehurst, you know, good Sandy scruffy areas, um, interesting architecture for 5,900 yard golf course, great land movement. Uh, obviously it's pretty short. So even when, you know, you're like myself and you don't play much anymore, you know, it's still enjoyable. It's not going to kick your teeth in by any means. Um, it's just a, I don't think, is there a, I don't think there's a water hazard on the golf course. Um, the driving range, the driving range has, oh yeah, the two, <laughs> the two holes, the board of the, the floating ball driving range. Um, but that's it. And so it's, yeah. It, the, it's, the, the ill conceived floating ball driving range. Yeah. My guess is they went with the flow. They, they didn't have room. You know, you look at, they've got the old uh, aerials in the bathroom, restroom, locker room, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there was no driving range. So I'm guessing at some point they probably felt like they needed to have a driving range for revenue. The only place they could do is wedge it between those two holes. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot of space there. It's like, well, we got to go limited flight and go, let's go floaters and put some water in there. And then just that, I guess have a water hazard on the golf course. Yeah. Um, uh, and then you got a, a reservoir for, uh, you know, keeping the grass wet. True. So yeah. Anyways, fifty nine hundred yards, public course. I, mean, I think to walk it is like twenty bucks. Uh, just fun, fast. I mean, it's basically fun, interesting, and fast is like the perfect trifecta for a golf course. That's nah, well said. The uh, you know Palaka is you know I get out and like to bang the persimmons around but like it's literally the perfect golf course for that yeah i mean it's it, so it, short it, that yeah and it's you know you, you know the move it just it, it's a fun play if you if you're if you're ever into trying out the persimmons that is the place to do it um it just will give you a whole different appreciation for like you know that era of golf and that type of equipment and yeah i mean it's a it is like you said fast fun it's interesting great movement very soft of the earth i mean you know they you get your beer in the plastic cup in there when you're done and hang out they got the little you know uh, uh you know used club section in the pro shop i still regret not picking up that cobra seven wood baffler that was a really that was a miss. yeah how much were the clubs um, out of that how much were the clubs out of that bag oh five bucks each yeah five bucks each it was fabulous um yeah i I walked out of there. I did get the t-shirt though. I, uh, I got the, as well to help. Uh... You, you got to help the cause. Uh, the, the Palaka golf club t-shirt with the Donald Ross on it is, is a fabulous piece, even though, you know, the Ross lineage is, uh, what would we call that? Debatable. Some you would, I would not, but you, you would. <laughs> I still it's, believe um, that I think what happened is that he he came, he saw, he made his plans, he left. The plans were executed by another man. Uh, yeah, that is my take. You have a different uh, opinion. Well, I I just you know I follow the facts. Uh, it's I um, think facts when I mean you're dealing with a, a something that happened ninety years ago. There's bound to be you know lost paperwork and this is true this is true i i i tend to err on the side again 
I, another reason I like playing golf is you, you can get out there and think your way around something. And, uh, you, sometimes you end up coming back to the, Hey, why not? You know, um, I, I, I like the, um, the man who shot Liberty Valance, uh, theory on this one, right? You ever seen that movie? I've not. Wonderful film. Uh, it's a John Ford, uh, directed, uh, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, just tremendous, tremendous movie. The, the brief synopsis is Jimmy Stewart's character is this U.S. Senator. He comes back in town to this, uh, what's now booming, you know, t- uh, town out West in Arizona and, uh, gets in on the train and all this hoopla and everybody's wanting, you know, so glad that he's returned and wonderful to see him and, they ask him why he's there, and he's, he says, oh, he's got some business. Well, the real reason he's there is he's there for a funeral, a very quiet, understated funeral for John Wayne's character. And then Jimmy Stewart has these flashbacks to the story as it unfolds back in the old days where uh, Jimmy Stewart was the upstart lawyer who moves to this rough-and-tumble western town. John Wayne's kind of the local hard-ass, and there's this, like, you know, evildoer, uh, cowboy, you know, the man in black named Liberty Valance. And long story short, um, Jimmy Stewart's character thinks that he shot Liberty Valance and was heralded as the hero. And it propels him into this, he gets the girl, propels him into this career uh, as a U.S. senator. Meanwhile, the real story is that John Wayne actually shot him, saved Jimmy Stewart's life, and then faded off into obscurity. So Jimmy Stewart's character comes clean in the movie to the newspaper man in the small town and says, "This the reason I'm here is to come to this man's funeral. He saved my life. He saved the town. He's the man who shot Liberty Valance. And the newspaper man rips up his notes, throws them in the fire, and looks at Jimmy Stewart and says... Uh, this is the West, and in the West, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Roll credit. Phenomenal film. And that's what I think about Palaka. Hey, the legend says Ross did it. Why not? What's it going to hurt if they say he did it? I don't, you know, why not? I don't care. I'm not going to argue about it anymore. <laughs> well, now that you've, you know, sullied the good name of Palaka Golf Club, well, you know, it's a it's a lovely spot. I'm into it. The guys love it. You know, again, think of think of all it's done for our little uh, our little text group. I mean, it gives us uh, an ever present topic. Sure, we. Uh, I mean, the five, five of us we did sneak out as a fivesome. Um, the five of us uh, have played golf once, and this text thread's been going on for more than a year, probably. Yeah, yeah. It was like it was. Um, I think it was like. December last year or January? Probably. Yeah, somewhere in there. And you know, Palaka, it holds up, too. I mean, it's architecturally interesting enough that it holds up. They hope that that Florida Azalea Amateur there. and I mean, the winning score, you know, you'd expect it to be like 195. And I mean, for it's par 70, it's usually, you know, six, seven under. um, Yeah. For, you know, a a good level of collegiate and amateur players. Well, it's one of those places where, you know, you can come out there and hit it 320 yards, but it's almost too much for it. Like it, it, in the sense that it doesn't really, you don't really gain any massive benefit by hitting it, you know. Well, Scott Fawcett would disagree. That far. 
Well, but, I'm sure he would. He's your boy. Your boys. He, we are. I enjoy Scott very much. Uh, so I'm not afraid to an, admit an, that. An, an animated individual. But y'all, you know, your your statistical driven minds. I can see just getting, you know, intertwined in text threads late into the evening. Well, that, but also our, you know, our, our friendship dates back to, you know, he, myself, Scott and Chris Como had dinner at a Mexican restaurant uh, in La Quinta, California <laughs> at the 2008 PJ Tour qualifying tournament. So we've known each other for, you know, 12 years now. So what did you get? Uh, I don't remember, but so I, I just, this is me saying that I knew Scott before he was big. Uh, yeah. I mean, isn't Zalatoris one of his boys? He is. So the, the story is uh, that Will always been known as an amazing ball striker. And Scott got injured, so he couldn't play in the amateur events that summer. Um, and he said, Will, let me caddy for you at the Texas State Amateur. Um, and I will tell you, you just hit it where I tell you to and you will win. Uh, and he did. And then he same summer, same thing at the U.S. Junior, and he won. Um, and cause Will was just this talented kid. He'd never really won anything, but you know, had the physical skills and Scott, you know, Sherpa him around the golf course and, uh, he won those things. And, you know, now he's on the, or about to be on the, the PJ tour here pretty soon. I, you think he wins this week? Uh, that might be a, a tall ask, he's, but I, I think that, he's a betting favorite. Yeah. Right? You know, if, if, uh, if that, you know, meant anything, you know, then casinos might be out of business. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know, gamers, gamblers, you know, betters, punters, whatever you want to call them, you know, like, look at the, what did the guy spent $45,000 last year betting on Phil at winged foot. I mean, come on. Yeah. That's just, I mean, that was, really no, I can bad. think of better use really of $45,000. Yeah. That was, that was reckless. That's not, what, not good. That was reckless. Um, not a good look. Not a good look. So, yeah, so Scott actually was playing in Q School, the Q School finals as an amateur that year, and Como was his teacher. Uh, Como and I both grew up at the Westlake Golf Course, you know, 5,000-yard gym in Southern California. So, um, yeah, I have a soft spot for Scott. Uh, he's a very interesting fellow. Uh, he's very smart. He's come up with a, a good system. And, uh, you know, he's not as – you know, he was, he was going after Twitter trolls on Monday morning, and I replied to him. I said, I'm glad <laughs> – that the validation of a major championship uh, for your methods uh, has not caused you to slow down at all. Cause he was firing right back. He just, he just, you know, can't, can't help. You know, he just isn't going to let a bad argument. Uh, I try to ignore the few trolls that I have and he, he just can't, he won't. So. Do you keep a, do you keep that kind of a, Little list of your trolls, you know. No, Get I'm hoping to forget them. Up. I'm I'm trying to go on a. I probably won't happen, but I'm trying to go on a Twitter hiatus for the remainder of the year. Oh, wow! The remainder of the year. Yeah, that's a whole quarter. I know, wow, but you know, there's only there's only one more major left. Uh, things that you know, we still have events, but things have slowed down a little bit. You know, try to maybe recapture some of my attention span. You know, work on some bigger things. People don't need me. You know producing statistical nuggets right now um, on, you know, whatever event may be. So I figured take a break, you know, try to knock out some big projects, learn some things, do some different things. And yeah, just see how it goes. Uh, uh, Justin Huber, some may know, corn fairy tour player. When the pandemic started, I was texting with him and 
uh, a swing instructor, TJ Yeaton. He's director of instruction here in Atlantic Beach. And somehow the idea of a Twitter hiatus came up. And uh, this was in March, right, when it hit. And Huber said he was taking a month off of Twitter. Uh, I texted him recently. He still has not been back on Twitter. um, And he said he loves it. It's kind of like when I got, I mean, I got off Facebook uh, a few years back and, uh, you know, I was worried I'd miss, you know, whatever and haven't missed a thing. I think Twitter, I, I agree. Yeah. I think Twitter a little different just cause I, uh, you know, need it for professional purposes, but yeah, I don't, you know, uh, I don't, I, I've pared my account down to pretty much only golf. Like I used to have a lot of political stuff in there with my you know, political background and stuff. And I, I just, I just completely exercised all that from my online life but i mean it's pretty much just the golf feed now which is nice but even that gets you know gets old i do i kind of i kind of feel like golf twitter's maybe mellowing out a little bit maybe i don't do you i don't know i I don't know i kind of feel like it is i feel like it got kind of i don't know it's getting a little testy there maybe about a year ago, and I don't know. Seems like everybody's kind of having a chuckle. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I've mellowed out. I think what I, may I have like happened that. is you had, you know, several people kind of pop up in the millennial golf media sphere, if you will, and it started out kind of chummy, and then people were trying to figure out their their niche, their their corner of the market, their niche, and so it got a little adversarial as you know people were trying to claim their territory. And I think now as those, you know, brands, outlets, whatever you want to call them, have gotten more established and are more, you know, they know what they are, they know what their lane is, they know what their niche is, and they just stick to that. I think you've got less, um, it's less adversarial, but I think there definitely was a little bit of, uh, yeah, you just had some turf wars early on because people were trying to carve out, you know, carve that niche out, you know, you're trying to make money, uh, you got to make money. And now that they have, I think people have maybe chilled out a little bit. So I can yeah, see that. I think that's, I think that's pretty close. I, you know, I, my own, I, I feel like, you know, like I almost sent a tweet out that was Bryson related you know, as he's coming down the stretch. And I was like, God, that's just a dickhead thing to say. To someone. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just not going to say it. I'm going to delete that and just sit back and, and enjoy the man, you know, hoisting his chocolate milk and trophies. <laughs> um, you know, which I feel like that's a sign of maturity, perhaps. You know, who knows? Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is fun to dive in there. I mean, you get some, it's kind of funny cause you just get some really interesting takes like, you know, the Gary player, you know, going on the rant about the trees. I mean, that gets, that gets pretty entertaining in a hurry when people start riffing off these things. And, um, I mean, I think too, frankly, can... I mean, I have friends, you know, this is an example. I have friends that I wouldn't have if it wasn't for golf Twitter. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation if we hadn't you we know, wouldn't. hooked up and you were saying, I'm coming to drive down I-10 to visit God's country and I'd like to play some golf. At, a, at an A.W. Tillinghast design. Exactly. You know, So here we are. We have golf Twitter to thank for. And uh, I'll be looking forward to the next time you make that drive uh, over this way. We're, uh, I hate I missed you uh, last time, but... Um, We'll look forward to doing it again. We've got to get uh, the boys together for, uh, you know, Ryder Cup version three and get the Palaka gang going. And I, there are some, I think there are actually, Smart, a couple of other little courses that we should pay some attention to between Tallahassee and Jacksonville. I've seen 
seen a couple of nuggets out there that have sparked my curiosity. I drove uh, by Lake City, uh, and mm. Lake City is the home of uh, former Walker Cupper, PGA Tour player, Corner Ferry Tour player, Blaine Barber. And uh, Lake City mm. Country Club looked like it had some character. You got Lake City. You got Swanee over there. I've heard good things about Swanee. I still haven't played Hyde Park. I thought that Swanee – are you sure not about the Swanee that's near uh, Chattanooga? No, no, no. Because that one's supposed to be great. That is great. I've played that one. That's uh, – Gil got his hands on that one. Um, and, um, yeah, Swanee's that, – that's a solid little nine-holer up there. But the Swanee that's in uh, – what is that? Live Oak, I guess. That's the one that um, that we need to go play. I got I got a tip on that one from – some of my uh, Northeast Florida friends said that might be worth uh, worth checking in. All right. I do think, unfortunately, I think I need to drop off here to assist the family with dinner preparations. Well, it's funny you say that. My wife is literally driving in uh, as we speak to uh, bring my darling daughter back home from daycare. And uh, like you said, time to get back to the family and uh, find a little bit of that stuff, right? Well, perfect. Well, this has been very enjoyable. Always a for, pleasure speaking with you, my friend. An honor to be on the debut episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is it, man. It'll be, uh, we'll be, we'll be bouncing around a little bit as we figure out what this uh, is going to look like. But uh, I like having these conversations that don't particularly go anywhere other than making friends a little closer. So uh, I'll look forward to the next one. Sounds good. Well, thank you. Thanks for tuning in, my friends. We'll look forward to having another conversation coming your way real soon. In the meantime, be sure to go and check out midamcrisis.com where you can find this episode and a range of blogs and other stories that I'll be posting as I continue through my journey sorting through golf life and everything in between.